Amen. I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer and join me in the gospel according to Mark. The announcement, the good news, the evangelion according to Mark. The term evangelion, good news, in the ancient world was always used uh, specifically in a Greek context always used to announce the arrival uh, of, of a king. It was always used to announce the coming of a king. It was a special, common phrase, now appropriated by the church, appropriated by the apostles to speak of the arrival of the new king, King Jesus. And of course, that term then has been adopted by the church. The, the, we are the evangelical church. We are evangelists. All of these terms come from this word, evangelion, the beginning of the gospel or the good news, the news. And so as Billy Graham put it, we are heralds because we bring the news, the good news. What good news? Specifically that a new king has arrived on the scene of creation. And it is this king's coronation that we are observing in these opening verses of Mark. Well, let's read together beginning in verse 9 through 11 as we continue our consideration of the inauguration of a king here in Jesus' baptism. Verse 9, in those days, in what days? In the days that John was baptizing in the Jordan River, calling on people to repent and to confess their sins. Repent, turn, and confess your sinfulness. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized, the word is immersed, by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, because he was submerged into it, immediately he saw the heavens, that is John the Baptist saw the heavens, being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts, having offered to you the praise that you are due, having considered the value of the sacrifice you made in the ordinance of communion. Now, Lord, we offer to you our minds. We offer our minds. As Paul said in Romans to we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so in the manner that the ancient Israelites would present a sacrifice of grain or present a sacrifice of an animal that is to be burned at the altar, slaughtered at the temple to cover our sins, we present to you not something to be destroyed, but something to be sanctified and remade, and that is ourselves. Something to be made new, and therefore something to be used by you. We present to you ourselves as a living sacrifice, 
Not a dying one, but a living one. And so, Lord, take now our minds. Would you take them? Would you, would you renew them by the washing of the water of the word? Would you mold them so that we might know you and therefore reflect you in the world? We ask this not for our sake, but for yours, for your glory, for your renown, as they say, or your reputation on the earth. We ask that you would take our feeble, broken, divided, sinful minds and that you would wash them, make them clean, mold them, make them new, inform them, inspire them, impassion them so that we might leave this place heralding the good news. Oh, dear Lord, help us. Lord, may you accomplish this in us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <sighs> Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This question has been the topic of debate for two millennia. The Orthodox, non-Messianic Jew says he was just another Roman insurrectionist who was killed for his trouble. The Muslim says Jesus was a prophet, but a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Muhammad came after Jesus. His word is the final word according to Islam. So Jesus was a prophet, and he spoke some good stuff, but Muhammad's word is final and therefore more authoritative by default. Of course, Christians say Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb who was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. However, even among so-called believers or Christians, the identity of Jesus, who is Jesus, has been hotly contested over time. The orthodox position is established by Jesus himself. When Jesus was confronted in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I am. And when he spoke those words, we read in um, John's account specifically that those who had come to arrest him fell over backwards at the power of his word. Love to have been a, a, a fly on the wall in that interaction. Right? To just hear Jesus say, I am. And to watch as a crowd of men with pitchforks and, and torches stumble backward over themselves. And then somehow, in their stupor and blindness, don't go, you know what? Maybe this is a bad idea. <laughs> he just knocked us all down with his words. No, of course, they were blind because they needed to be blind because Jesus needed to go to the cross in order to rescue us, and so they weren't thinking rationally. No, but he was establishing his identity. I am. He was echoing the words that Yahweh said to Moses in Exodus 30, or in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. 
when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, the chief priests tore their clothes and wailed in agony, saying, what more testimony do we need? You've heard the blasphemy from the man himself. So when Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, he was clearly claiming to be God, simply a title that we often diminish and misunderstand. The early church was then riddled with challenges to the identity of Jesus. Who was Jesus? They asked themselves. Challenges were made to the simple statement that Jesus is God, two natures in one, without confusion. The challenges came in the form of someone like Arius and what's called the Arian heresy, the Gnostics, who claimed Jesus was a, a, a spirit but not a man. He didn't make footprints in the sand when he walked. He hovered. He didn't eat. And if he wasn't a, a real man, then he couldn't have really died. And that has a lot of implications theologically. Who is Jesus? We are privileged in the 21st century to live in a time when those challenges have already been met with strong, intelligent, and largely unified condemnation leading to the settling of these matters. We have, in these days, the language of what's called the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. Who is Jesus? He is fully or truly God, truly man forever inseparable two distinct natures in one person now those of us who have been around the church for a while we hear that and we go yeah obviously yeah well this wasn't so obvious in the first century or the second century or the third century it took time for this language to be ratified for it to be crystallized for it to be brought into if you will the catechesis the settled teaching of the church History is thus replete with challenges, questions, wars, and debates which have raged over the answer to this question, who is Jesus? It is insufficient or elementary to merely believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, his death for your penalty. It's not untrue, but it lacks the other half of the equation. Jesus was not merely sinless and thereby the perfect sacrifice foreshadowed in the spotless lamb. He was also the perfect man. Mankind was given a charge and a purpose by God in the Garden of Eden. That purpose was to be the image bearer of God in his created world. In Adam's sin, that charge and purpose was forfeited. The dominion then that God gave man over the earth was spiritually transferred to Satan. Fast forward and all of humanity has inherited Adam's failure, Adam's forfeiture. You were given a charge, take dominion, be the image of God in his created space. We forfeited that right in Adam, we forfeited that purpose. And so we are living in a state where we have to 
if you will, ask ourselves, how can we regain that purpose? How does a man regain his purpose to reflect the image of God in his world? That was God's purpose for your existence. How do we do that? Well, it's actually pretty easy. Just obey the law of God perfectly, down to millisecond obedience of action, thought, intent, motive, ambition, word, and deed. Live an entire human existence from birth to death, having never violated one of God's precepts, one of his laws, not in action, nor even in the heart, in the desire, in the thought, neither in the seen nor in the unseen realm of human existence. That's all. Then, that one person, not his wife, not her husband, not their children, not their parents, that one person who has done what I just described is permitted to enter into heaven or be at peace with God in God's space. Now, the rational, honest person admits that's impossible. Um, And that's the point of the Christian faith. (laughs) It's impossible. It is impossible to earn your way up to God's space. That is Christianity in a nutshell, if you will. It is the opposite of every other world religion, which says you can earn your way up. If your good outweighs your bad, you'll be all right. Try harder, give more, hit yourself in the back with one of those medieval whips. Offer penance, pay money. Try to make up for the wrong that you've done with good that you've done and hope that the balance, the scales balance out when you meet God on the day of judgment. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, actually, you can't do that. You can't balance it out. You can only be absolutely perfect. Oh, you can't be perfect? All right, game over. You're sunk, friend. So the rational person admits, it's impossible, I can't do it. So what must happen is that a champion, a representative, must accomplish the feat for you. This is why David and Goliath is such a great story. Because David did what the army of Israel could not and would not. He represented Israel. As Goliath said, send a champion. If I beat your guy, you guys are slaves to us. If your guy beats me, we are slaves to you. Either way, the fate of the whole population rests on the shoulders of the actions of the champion. Right? That's why David and Goliath is a great story. It's not to inspire you to go slay your Goliaths. That makes the Bible about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. So Jesus, our champion. Jesus, the champion, the representative walks in to the scene and he accomplishes the impossible. He is a man who perfectly fills up all the requirements of God's perfect law. Live every moment with every heart intention, with every ambition, with every thought, 
up to the standard of God's righteous requirement of humankind to be at peace with him. Jesus does this. Jesus is therefore the only man in heaven who deserves to be there. Because as a man, he did all that is required of man to be at peace with God. The good news is that even though he lived the perfect human life, God the Father punished him as though he lived your imperfect life. So in salvation, three things are essentially happening. One, his death is counted as yours, meaning the price of the crime of sin required a payment, and that payment was paid in full. I mean, if you and I go outside right now, we get in our cars, and we're texting and driving, and we head-on collision someone, and we end their life. We, according to the justice system, rightly have a price now to pay. We have committed a violation. That violation requires a penalty. That penalty must be served. Jesus at the cross served the penalty of sin, the sin of mankind against the law of God. And so at the cross, his death is counted as yours. Though he lived perfectly, he was treated as though he hadn't for you. Secondly, his life is counted as yours. So his death is counted as yours, but also his life is counted as yours. Like I said, Jesus is the only man who deserves to be in heaven. In salvation, his deserving life is counted as yours. He earned you the reward of living the perfect human life. And then thirdly, you might say, simply, your failure is transferred to him. Not just your sin in death, but also your failure in life. You get what he earned, he takes on himself what you earn. The technical term is double imputation. Double imputation, or the great exchange. Paul talks about this in Philippians, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning not having filled up the standard, but... So not having that, but having that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, that is the accomplishment from God that depends on faith. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I have what Jesus accomplished by faith. He didn't accomplish it by my faith. I have it by faith. But he accomplished it. What did he accomplish? Righteousness. What is righteousness? The standard of God being filled up. And the great exchange is then, of course, expounded upon in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake. This is, this is arguably, this is, the, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's probably the most important verse in all of the New Testament. Christian, you should know this verse. 
You should say it. You should say it to yourself every day, all day, every morning and at night. This is the heartbeat. We don't understand that it's the heartbeat, but it's the heartbeat of the Christian faith. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that's massive. That is the great exchange. He didn't just take on sin, he became sin. You don't just get clothed with righteousness, you become the righteousness of God. It is the identity of Jesus and the identity of his followers. It is who we are at the deepest root of our existence, despite all and any physical observation. In Christ, I am the standard of God filled to the brim. In Christ, I deserve to be at peace with God in his space. In Christ, I boldly approach the throne of grace. In Christ, I have what he earned by faith. And he took on himself what I earned. This is tremendous, friends. Jesus died for your sins. It's incomplete, friends. It's incomplete. You're a sinner. You earned death. Jesus is perfect. He earned life. At the cross, he made a way for you to take what he earned and for him to take what you earned. That's the gospel. To tell people that Jesus died for their sins when they have not yet come to the point of the preaching of the law that brings the man or the woman under conviction of sin is foolishness. It's irrelevant. You go tell someone out there that Jesus died for their sins. They say, so what? So what does that mean? Why does that matter? Who cares that a Jewish man died 2,000 years ago? It matters not. Unless, unless I am hopeless alone, hopelessly living, hopelessly on a collision course with the judgment throne of God, unless that's communicated, Jesus died for you is irrelevant in the mind of the hearer. So we must know 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, meaning he did this for you. He made him, God made Jesus to be sin. We talked a lot last week about identity and this cultural phenomenon of identifying with something. And that's what we're talking about here in the, in the gospel. Jesus took on the identity of sinful man so that you in salvation through, by grace through faith can take on the identity of the man who deserves to be in heaven at peace with God. We see this first in Jesus' baptism. Jesus identifies with fallen humanity in the waters of baptism for repentance. He did this according to his own words to fulfill all righteousness, to fill the cup of God's standard. 
What does that mean? Well, this is the requirement of man. God requires fallen man to repent and be baptized as a symbol of his turning, rebirth, renewal. God requires it of fallen man. Therefore, Jesus, our champion, does it in order to be the man who fills up God's requirement for mankind. Did you follow that? God requires it. Man must repent. Man must confess. Man must be cleansed. Man must be remade. Ezekiel 36, they must be given a new heart of flesh. So that is reborn from the inside out. This is what is required by God of man to be at peace with him because he can't live the perfect life. So he must be made new, start over fresh from the beginning. And since God requires it of man, Jesus does it for our sake. In his life, in his obedience, in his death, and in his resurrection, Jesus is identifying with fallen humanity. He is taking on himself the identity of a sinful man so that you might take on yourself by faith, as Paul says, that you might put on Christ. As Jesus does this, as he takes these steps of perfect obedience to fill up the requirement of God for sinful man, the heavens break open. The Father speaks, affirms Jesus as the prince of the world, the human who is the true and better Adam, seated on the throne of creation. Mark's account reads, you are my beloved son. Matthew's reads, for the onlooker, this is my beloved son. So that there can be no doubt that Jesus was more than a mere good teacher or a prophet, God the Father announces to the people of the realm, here is the new king of creation. This is more than a prophet who speaks my words, this is my beloved son. This is more than a priest who mediates between God and man. This is my beloved son. This is more than a man who died on the Roman cross. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the final prophet, the final and true priest, and the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Prophet, priest, and sacrifice. His identity is here being affirmed by three signs. We'll speak of them in four sections. We began last week, what we finished today. Jesus' identity as this true and better Adam, the new king of creation, is identified by God or is affirmed by, number one, the voice of God. Now, again, we spoke to this last week. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, I can't encourage you in strong enough terms to go back and listen. I can't repeat everything we did last week, even though it is time change, and I was told I could preach for two hours. <laughs> I 
I encourage you to read 1 Kings chapter 1 last, last week. And the, the rival competition to the throne of Israel in David's death. And how the one thing, or one very specific thing that was required and that was sought after is the voice of the spiritual authority. Whether it was the prophet or it was the priest, both rival to the throne wanted a holy man to announce that they are the king. And so here, the heavens are torn open, the spirit descends, and the voice of God, the highest possible spiritual authority that one could petition, affirms the kingship of Jesus. And so we come there to number two, the second sign affirming Jesus' identity. It is the ripping open of heaven. The ripping open of heaven. The word torn here, schizo, is a unique word. It's not common. It is used later on when Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross and the veil in the temple is schizo. Same word, torn from top to bottom. I think there's probably some foreshadowing there. The heavens are torn open at Jesus' inauguration. The veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom at his death on the cross. There are layers to that foreshadowing that we don't have time to explore today. But I encourage you, devote your mind to it. Why not this week? Find the connection between the tearing of the heavens and the tearing of the temple curtain. Why shouldn't you? Why won't you? Why don't you? Do you not have the internet? Oh, you do have the internet. Do you not have a smartphone with a browser? Oh, you do have a smartphone with a browser, and you pay money for that. And for that internet, that Wi-Fi. Wait a minute, you can sit in your bed on a cordless device and access almost everything I have access to in preparation for my sermons to research the connection between the tearing open of the heavens and the tearing of the temple curtain. Why won't you? Or better yet, church, why, why, why don't we? Why won't we? Well, enough of an angry father scolding his children. Pardon me. Moses, Joshua, and Elijah parted the waters, Grant Osborne says. But Jesus tears the very fabric of heaven. I love that. Why were the heavens ripped open and why was this important? at Jesus' inauguration. Well, number one, it fulfills prophecy. Isaiah said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So the tearing open of the heavens fulfills prophecy about the Messiah. Furthermore, it fulfills Jewish 
custom or Jewish text that is extra biblical. There's something called the Testament of Levi, written 250 years before Jesus. I believe piggybacking on the voice of the prophet Isaiah, it reads like this. The heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, which is where? Go ahead. Okay, I'll do it. I'm going to start again, and this time you be ready, okay? Here we go. The heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, which is where? Yeah, heaven. It's still, like, tame, uh, but you know the answer, right? Okay, the heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice, as from Abraham to Isaac, and the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him, and the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest on him. That's fascinating. It fulfills prophecy. It certainly fulfills a Jewish understanding of when the Messiah would come, what it would be like. Which brings us to the third sign, what happened when the heavens were ripped open, the descending or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended like a dove. That doesn't mean that an actual bird landed on Jesus. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is a bird. I love um, the Calvary Chapel dove. I went to Calvary Chapel Bible College, uh, and the dove, the, the, the Calvary dove, this outline of like a bird, it's everywhere. Right, it's on the website, and it's behind the pulpit, and it's on the literature, and it was on our sweatshirts, you know. And I love the dove. Love the dove. But the Holy Spirit's not a dove. The Holy Spirit's not a bird. The Holy Spirit is a person. Mark says that he descended like a dove. How does a dove descend? That's the question. Not what does the Holy Spirit look like. How does a dove descend? And, and the dove is considered to be the, the, the most graceful, peaceful, beautiful kind of bird. And so how did the Holy Spirit descend? With a crash? No. If you will, gracefully. Certainly, without question, pointing back to that anointing oil that was poured on David's head. How was David anointed with oil? Was it thrown in his face? <laughs> I anoint you king of Israel. Whoosh, you know? That's power. It's authoritative, right? I splash you, you know? No, it was, it was like, like following every crevice of his feature in his face, right? Sort of, sort of blanketing him, if you will blanketing his person, blanketing his face, blanketing his identity, running down smoothly. Same idea. The Holy Spirit came down and rested on Jesus, blanketing his identity with the Spirit himself. Here, Jesus is identified as the anointed one. As David was anointed with oil, by the word of God, as Aaron the high priest was anointed with oil according to the word of God. Here Jesus is anointed with the spirit of God without measure according to the word of God. Right? 
The Father spoke and the Spirit descended. According to God's word, he is anointed king, priest. In the creation narrative, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And this is interesting. Here, the new creation initiated by Jesus, Jesus being the firstborn of the new creation, he is the first fruits of the resurrection, he is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, the Spirit hovers over the waters of his baptism as a picture of new creation and then descends on him. That's another interesting parallel, isn't it? What's the connection between the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in creation and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of baptism in Jesus, the new creation? I'm not going to repeat my earlier scolding. That, that was borderline harsh. Why don't we research it this week? What's the connection? Perhaps we didn't know there was a connection. Perhaps we didn't know there was a foreshadowing before, but we know now. Let's find out more. Why not? You got better things to do? Better shows to binge? This is my point, church. So the Spirit anoints Jesus, King of new creation. Finally, Jesus' identity is affirmed in the announcement of the Father. So again, really three things, three signs. We'll call them four partitions. You have the voice of God, that's meaningful, but you also have what he said, his announcement. Let's read it again. Verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now this reads like two statements, but in the original text it's three. It's like this, you are my son, whom I love, with whom I am pleased. So it's three parts, even though in the English rendering it reads like two. Let's consider the three and their significance. The significance of the announcement of the father in the inauguration of the son as king of the new creation. Number one, you are my son, You are my son. Remember, last week we talked about this. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 predicts a famine of the word of God. Not a famine of food, but a famine of a prophetic inspired word. And for 400 years, no prophet authoritatively, divinely spoke on God's behalf. The Jewish people are a people who exist based on the affirmation that God has spoken from heaven to men called prophets. Think about that for a moment. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, on down the line. If God did not say, I have chosen you, I have given you this land, here is my law, you are my people, 
then the Hebrews are no different than every other people group in the region with their personal deity. To say that the people of Israel depend on God speaking is a gross understatement. They don't just depend on it, live by it. They exist on the confidence that it has happened. What do the people of Israel claim? What do they stand on? Even up to today, God gave us this land. Well, anybody can say that anybody said anything. You know what? I think I'll come. I think I'll come to the biggest house in the church this afternoon. I'll knock on your door, and I'll say, "God gave me your house." Well, anybody can say anybody said anything. So it matters, not just that they believe that God spoke, but it matters that he spoke. They don't exist as a people. They have no claim to the land. They have no promise, no peace, no law, no moral authority. They have nothing if God hasn't spoken and then affirmed it was him who was speaking through many signs and wonders, miracles that cannot be denied no matter how far removed from history we might be. The people exist because God has spoken. And then he goes silent. Suddenly there's this nut job baptizing people in the Jordan River, eating bugs, looking like a crazy person. There's all these people there. This very normal-looking Jewish man walks up. The crazy man says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all eyes go, Who? And as he descends down into the waters, a quiet hush falls on the people. He didn't say that before I got baptized. (laughs) He's in the water. He's up out of the water. And suddenly, I can only imagine the sound of thunder ripping open the heavens and the voice of God coming, not like Saul in his conversion with Jesus where other people heard something but didn't understand it. No, audibly, for all to hear, the Son himself and witnesses abound. This is my Son whom I love. Did you hear that? (laughs) Yeah, did you hear it? Yeah. And the silence is broken. And God is speaking. And these people whose whole existence depends on the voice of God speaking have once again heard his voice. What did he say? He said, that's the new king. There's my son. I think in other translations it reads, listen to him. So it's meaningful that God has spoken. 
Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor see his great fire any more, lest I die. This is at Mount Sinai, right? And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Only the coming of the Messiah, only the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 could put an end to the protracted silence. Psalm 2-7, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, we have read Many of us who grew up in the church, we have read the story of the baptism of Jesus, and we read, God said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am pleased. And we went, okay, yeah. No. God spoke the words of prophecy from the psalmist in order to affirm that he wasn't just speaking, he was speaking prophetic words now fulfilled. This is my son, Psalm 2, 7. It's my son, number two, my son whom I love. This is no doubt a reference back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. This is the son, not a son, the son, the only son. Now, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but God said, take Isaac, your only son. It's very specific in the Hebrew. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. So is God a liar? Is he, what's going on here? This is the point. Isaac is the son born out of love, not the son born out of death and disbelief and mistrust. It's the son of the spirit, not the son of the flesh. The son born out of the union with your wife whom you love, not born out of mistrust, foolishness, and self-will. Your only son. And so it is the son of love This is my son who I love, or the son birthed out of love. It has been said that that all of creation is the export, if you will, the overflow of the love of the union of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's an interesting way to think of it. I don't have a problem with that theologically. This is my son who I love. The son born of love. For God so loved the world that he gave the son. See the connection? Is there a connection between Abraham (laughs) and the son whom I love? I'm not going to do it again. Why don't you research it? 
Thirdly, with whom I am pleased. The announcement of the Father. This is, the, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I am pleased. Again, behold, my servant whom I uphold. Isaiah 42, 1, same reference as earlier. My chosen in whom my soul delights. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. These weren't just nice words from God. God says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a sign that will tell everybody who's present that Jesus' baptism is special, it's different. I'll say something like, oh, it was prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Each statement is a fulfillment of a different prophetic foreshadowing. When Messiah comes, this is what he'll be like. This is what will happen. This is what will be heard. This is what will be stated. Psalm 2-7 and Deuteronomy 18 and Isaiah 42-1. At each instance of the detail of this baptism, prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Who is Jesus? Do you see now? You see how important it is. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God, the fulfillment of prophecy, the King of creation, the King, the new King of new creation, the new and better Adam, or the true and better Adam, we should say. He is the servant whom I uphold. He is my chosen, God says, in whom my soul delights, and I have put my spirit on him, as we saw. The anointed one. What will he do? He will bring forth justice to the nations. And oh, friends, <laughs> oh, friends, Jesus, the righteous judge, sitting in the courtroom, and you approach, and you say, here is my life's accomplishment. Here is what I have to offer. Here's year five, and year six, and seven, and eight, and 16, and 18, and 25, and 35, right? Here are the years of my life. Here's what I did with my time. Here's my energy. Here's all my thoughts. Here's all my goals and ambitions. Here's the innumerable times and ways that I violated the law of God. Here they are. Can I come in? And the righteous judge says, no way. No way, man. That doesn't cut it. That doesn't fulfill the standard of God. You're out. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And the nations will come to him at the throne, and they will all be rejected on the basis of what they have accomplished because that's righteous justice awarded to the nations of the people of creation. Over 100 billion strong from Adam to present. That is unless, right? Unless. Unless the justice that brings, that Jesus brings to the nations is a justice that is, says, you can have what I accomplished. It can be awarded to you. 
You can claim it for yourself. You can put it on. And when you come before the throne of justice, you say, not here are all my life's failures. You say, here are the accomplishments of Jesus' perfection. From day one to the end. Here is Jesus' life. Not mine. Here's Jesus. Can I come in? And that's the justice Jesus offers to the nations. However, it matters. It matters who he is. It matters who he is. It matters who he is objectively, and it matters who he is to you. Is Jesus your identity? When we stand before the throne of judgment, will we present to him our life's accomplishments or will we present to him his life's accomplishments because we have worn them. We have put them on by grace through faith. We have repented due to the call of the Messiah. We have turned from wickedness and walked in his footsteps. We have confessed our sin and our need. We have taken up our hands and put them to the plow of the kingdom of God and not looked back. If anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his cross every day. You wake up and you say, my life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. And where I sin and where I err, I confess, I am grieved, I repent, I, I turn, I denounce the wickedness that's in my life, in my mind, in my heart, in my words, in my actions, in my motivations. That's a Christian And so, will we stand before Jesus having put him on? Or will we be among those that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7, who sat in a church pew and said some nice things, and he'll say, I don't know you. You didn't put me on. You hung around. But you didn't denounce your former way of life. You didn't make me the highest priority of your life. You weren't grieved over your sin. You hid your sin so you could indulge your sin and then placate your conscience by going to a church building a couple of times a week when you weren't on vacation. Right? That's the standard, friends. And God forbid we lower that to anything less. And so take up your cross and follow him. Who is Jesus? Is he the king of creation? Is he the Lord of your life? Or is he merely the son of God who was revealed? Whom you have not put on? Well, that's probably enough for today. Probably enough and then some. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Uh, to to, to not merely comfort us in our sin and our rebellion, but your kindness to confront us, to challenge us, your kindness to compel us to repent, to follow you, to walk in your footsteps. Lord, one day we will stand before you, either clothed in your life's accomplishments or stained with our own failure.
Oh, Lord, by your spirit, may you convict us of the true reality of our hearts, whether we will be one or the other, whether we stand today in one position or the other. And by your grace and by your kindness, we ask all these things. Amen. A few years ago, I got to ask Alistair Begg, my preaching hero, a single question. And, um, and the question that I chose to ask was, uh, if you could speak to your former self, like yourself 30 years ago, um, what would you say, having learned all you've learned over the last four decades of pastoral ministry? And one of the things that he said was, um, I would drive the people less. Does that make sense? I would drive them less. He said, I would, he said, I would you know, come on, come on, you know. And, um, and my fear, I'm afraid, um, I've, I've in, um, in, a, in a moment of love and, uh, and great fervor and passion, I've uh, crossed the line from lovingly compelling you like a spiritual father uh, to driving you in the error of my mentor when he was younger. And so I want to ask you this morning, first of all, to forgive me. Um, but second of all, then, hear, hear the words uh, spoken rightly. Um, and perhaps just simply consider, um, are there things that you are prioritizing on a weekly and daily basis above the seeking of your Savior? Are we offering to the idol of entertainment our minds and our time when we could search diligently the vast array of Scripture and see, you know, and behold the beauty of the God who we claim to know and serve and love? Maybe hear that um, and maybe dismiss an earlier forceful uh, scolding. Uh, I thank you for your grace. If you have questions after the service and like to pray with someone, just look for one of us with a little blue name tag. We would love to pray with you, answer those questions. And in the meantime, um, let's dismiss. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. I love you. Jesus, our Messiah, hold oh, for